Welcome to Enigmatic Metallic Podcast, where we respect fashion's past, analyze fashion's present, and get excited about fashion's future. I'm Liberty Ampoff, founder and creative principal of fashion media company Manic Metallic. Once a week, we'll bring you episodes about exciting things happening in fashion, discussion about current things facing the industry, and the places and people that have made the fashion industry great. We'll have a mixture of episodes with guest interviews and solo episodes, all designed to challenge your assumption of what fashion is, who it is for, and who can participate in this industry. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Instagram at the Metapathology Podcast and at Metapathology. We'll link in our show notes. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to the Manic Metallic Podcast. I'm Liberty, your host. Our conversation for episode 47 was with Leslie Gallen, who, as past president of Footwear for Informer Markets, created and developed FN Platform, the footwear shows at the world-famous Magic Trade Show. She scouts the world's best new designers and trends, providing unparalleled business insights and access into the world of footwear and beyond. She's worked at multiple notable design brands such as Escada, Jeffrey Bean, and Pauline Trigère. She holds a number of board positions and has been featured in media sources such as Footwear News, Footwear Plus, Oh, Oprah Magazine, Fox's Good Day LA, and more. Leslie draws from a vast storehouse of fashion industry knowledge and experience on the show today to both detail her fashion journey and give our listeners class A advice on how to succeed in the fashion industry. Join me in welcoming Leslie to the Manic Metallic podcast. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Liberty, for having me. I'm excited to do this with you today. I'm excited too. So could you, for our listeners out there, just give them a summary and a couple of sentences what you do in the fashion industry? Sure. I think perhaps maybe it'll make a little bit more contextual sense if I start in the very beginning. You know, went to school for marketing and business administration and always loved fashion. My parents were clothes horses (laughs) from way back when. Understanding the quality and construction of a garment was really important. So long story short, I, through people I knew, said I'd love to work in the industry. And lo and behold, never thinking I'd get a phone call back, I did. And it was for a resident buyer's position in New York. And in those days, there were lots of resident buying offices. This one in particular was called Sophie Phelps. Anyway, little did I know that I'd be working for in the couture division. And basically what that meant as a startup job is I'm going to go out there and just deliver the orders. But what it did for me, and I'll never forget the first day on the job, I met Halston, Bill Blass and a few other key designers. And I'll never forget, this is way before cell phones, standing on the payphone on the corner of 40th and 7th Avenue, calling my mother to say, I think I found something I'm really going to enjoy doing. And lo and behold, that took on a life of its own. So I didn't stay at the buying office as an assistant buyer for too long because many of the showrooms at that point wanted to hire me. Okay. So fast forward, I ended up with companies like Ascada in the early 80s when there were four of us and we launched the business in the United States, which was an unbelievable, wonderful time working directly with Margaretha Lai in Germany and the group here in the United States. 
From there, I went to Louis Ferreau, which is a was a French ready-to-wear house that did beautiful collections. And from there, I worked for Jeffrey Bean and Pauline Tregier. Kind of then things were changing in the industry and I decided to move to California. And at the time, knowing I needed employment, I had contacted Alan Schwartz from ABS and basically said to Alan, you're going to hire me. And he did. And I ran his West Coast sales for quite some time. And then lo and behold, I ended up years later meeting someone in the trade show industry, which was fascinating to me because I had always come from actually making garments, selling garments, creating fashion shows in various cities to actually now taking it to a more business level, to merging my business knowledge along with putting on a trade event. And understanding both sides of the aisle made it very successful. So at the time, it was in the shoe industry. And again, I really didn't know much about the footwear industry, but I immersed myself into it. And I would say for the last 20 years, I've been involved in the fashion footwear industry, having created the largest trade event, most respected trade event in the United States, which was part of magic at the time called FN Platform. And that kind of brings us up to date to where we are today after COVID coming out of that. I've been very fortunate to be doing consulting work. I enjoy helping people create their businesses and making the right connections so that people can succeed and helping them strategically with their businesses. Wow, there's a lot to chew on there. So what I'd like to do now is just go back a little bit back to the beginning when you were in New York City. Now, could you just refresh my memory? Were you born in a city? Were you born in the area nearby or... Yeah, I'm from New Jersey, Cliffside Park. And it's kind of ironic because during COVID, doing some ancestry background, I actually found out that one of my grandfathers was a cutter in the garment industry. And Very cool. Yeah, I'm glad you know what that is. So everything from when garments were produced in Manhattan, for instance, with Jeffrey Bean, where the studio was right behind our showroom where they actually made the clothes. So learning the construction of the garment was key for me. And at that time, being able to work with Al Barry Bez, who later went on to head up Lon Vaughn, was just, it was a magical time. Really learning and understanding and appreciation for quality and style I think is what perhaps maybe now is lacking a little bit, but I do see it coming back. Oh my gosh. So before we go on any further, anything else that I was going to ask, I'll just ask in a little bit. Tell me what it was like working with Albert Elbaz, because as someone that owns a company in fashion, I don't like to put anyone up on a pedestal. I generally don't do that, but I've idolized Albert Elbaz for years. And I would love to have had a chance to met him, but he passed, unfortunately. Rest in peace. Yes. Yep. So what was that like? Working with Albert. So we had created the Mr. Bean division. And basically what that was, was Jeffrey allowed us into his archives. 
And we took from that the best of what Jeffrey did and interpreted it for a more ready-to-wear marketplace, still using high-quality fabrics and styling and craftsmanship. And it was just a wonderful time because at the moment, Albert was Jeffrey's lead design associate, and he had been given this project. So it truly was a collaboration of mindsets. It's unfortunate that the business at that time, which is the fortunate part, Takashimaya was the money behind it. But I would say like two years into the project, unfortunately, Jeffrey Bean passed away. And so there you go. Even though we could have continued, it wasn't the same. But learned so much from Albert, from the fabric houses and, and learning how to develop relationships with outside vendors was very important. So I did learn that from him. Yeah, I'm sure that that was a really informative time for you, as it would be for anyone. Now we'll go backwards, and I want to know a little bit more about that moment when you got into New York and you started meeting all of these people in the industry that have become legends and that were probably legends in their own time. So tell us how those meetings were facilitated, or if not facilitated, how did you make those happen? I'll be honest with you. I'll give you an example. My boss at Escada, who's unfortunately also passed, Gloria Gelfand, she used to have a saying that she'd write a book and it was going to be called, and I never had a resume. Because in those days, just like it really is now, it is all who you know and recommendations, because a piece of paper can only tell you so much. Of course. And as we see today, fashion and celebrity were very much tied together, even back then dressing celebrities for events, but there were far more, I'll call them carriage trade retailers. And at the time, in the major stores, the buyers spent time on the sales floor. So we were able to ship a garment in, let's say on a Friday. And by Monday, I would know whether it fit, didn't fit, if it was going to sell and what the story is. It was a completely different time Obviously, there was no internet, but people were hungry to present themselves dressed well because later on became dressed for success. But there's something to be said about when you walk into a room about how people perceive you, first impressions. Yep. And it was just so, how did, how did all of this come about? I would really say it became relationships, who you know, because I would meet someone, I would do work. And people are like, oh my God, she's fabulous. You know, give her more money, let her run this, let her do this. And you learn. It was very fast paced. I mean, the things that went on then probably could never go on now. A lot of yelling and screaming in the showrooms. You're dealing with creative people. Right. So that part of it kept it exciting and a bit of an emotional roller coaster. But I would equate the fashion business to Hollywood. They used to say that if you can make it in the fashion business, you can make it anywhere. Because it's true. You really need to have a strong constitution, a very strong desire to succeed, good self-image, and a gift to gab. I agree. And I like to think that I have that. <laughs> you know, I started a fashion media company. <laughs> Yeah, and I think nowadays you really need to be well-written 
and aware of all the technology that's out there to help build brands and companies. It's completely different today than it was in those days. Let's talk a bit about that. And you're, you, you know, someone that was around back in the, what some would call the glory era of fashion, and you had these different ways of communicating. I know that you said that a lot of it was based off of relationships and who you know, but could you just give a bit more detail from your perspective of how communicating was different versus today where we've got the internet and we've got cell phones and because it seems like there's something else underneath that we, I feel like a lot of journalists and critics are talking around that we can't quite put a finger on. Yeah, I think a lot of it right now is the industry trying to figure out how to utilize all of the opportunities that are available. Digital, how do you use bloggers, stylists, influencers, How do you stay on top of the newest trends of technology? Because technology has changed. I know there's a lot of talk about sustainability. But at the level, you know, in those days, there was couture. There was ready to wear. There was casual. And I think we've kind of, because of people's lifestyles and things, moved away from the couture but are slowly moving back towards it. And I think a lot of that has to do with what's happened in the last few years because craftsmanship, quality, artisans are starting to come back. That young people today are recognizing the fact that they really need to learn. There used to be apprenticeships. There used to be learning buying programs, you know, buyer training programs with all of the big department stores, which doesn't exist anymore. So how do you get your training? Not everything is learned in school, at least not on this side of it. You really need business. You really need not only from the art standpoint and the creativity, but to really learn about business. Because at the end of the day, that's what this is. It's a business. And all too often, I've seen many designers lose their positions because they really didn't embrace or understand the financial aspects of the business. That's so true. When I was in high school and I was getting ready to apply to schools, I will say I actually didn't know that fashion school existed. I said, that sounds funny, but I didn't. But also I knew that I wanted to be in the industry somehow, but I also wanted to make money. And so I actually didn't attempt to do anything creative in school. I went for finance because Mm -hmm. I wanted to, well, honestly, I wanted to make money, (laughs) but, (laughs) but in doing that, and then after being done with school, having jobs in marketing, sales, tech, all of these different industries, and then entering fashion, starting a company. I do feel like it has positioned me a lot better to be able to take business concepts and fuse those together with my creative impulses to be able to wake up every day and run a business. And I do feel like that's something that I've seen that a lot of creatives don't have. You're right. So one thing that Manic Metallic did recently is we created a digital product that gives creatives a way to, it doesn't tell you everything, but it gives you a jump start on the technical aspects of starting a business. 
It's one small step, but I want to do something that could help creatives to maybe overcome. I don't know if it's being intimidated or having a fear of the business side of things or technical side, but I think that it's something that needed to be done. Yeah, it's so vital to the success because, for instance, there's a difference between the footwear industry and the apparel industry. In footwear, the product has to fit. You can't take a seam in or a seam out to have it fit. Where clothing, it's obviously different. And the cost to produce a garment as opposed to a pair of shoes, it costs far more the investment to get into the shoe business. So I think that's why today, both in apparel and footwear, you're seeing people being hired in the C-level positions that have business backgrounds that may come from other companies not having to do with fashion because the industry is a revenue generator. So many ways, it's a global business. And it's wonderful to be creative because it takes everything to run a good business. So no one person can do all things. But if you're passionate and you're talented, fabulous, then surround yourself with smart people. Never feel that it takes away from you because it only enhances you. People will respect you for surrounding yourself with smart people that can give advice. And that's really important today because it's all about making brands. No longer is, quote, there was a time where private label was like, oh, the thing. No, rounders and rounders of stuff just because it was cheap really is gluttonous and didn't produce a good use of square footage in stores. Everything has its moments. Everybody's looking for the next panacea. What's the next new way to make a fortune? And we talk about biodegradable product, sustainable, upcycling, all the different buzzwords that are going on, which is good. It's all good that the world and the generations coming up are looking to understand how to help the planet. And truthfully, though, if you really go back, we've used the planet's resources quite well. It's just how we dispose of waste that's part of the biggest conversation, or should be right now. So it's an interesting moment because if you create a brand with a following and a collaboration, for instance, with brands and maybe famous retailers or celebrities, it's all about, I'll say, advertising, getting the word out there. Where years ago, you know, you had a lot of print magazines people in carriage trade stores, those stores were used, okay, by other retailers to kind of go see who you were carrying to know what was hot. And that's shifted tremendously because now it's about storytelling. Who could tell the best story about their product and explain the value proposition of a product? And that's key today in success. And I think that's also true probably for just about any industry or any product. Of course. So one thing that I want to get back to is creatives and this idea that when you're creative, you try to do all of these things yourself. And I feel like creative people, myself included, we tend to zero in on the idea that 
we've got these creative talents and nothing else matters. We live for our art, I'll say. And I think that the way that that manifests for a lot of creative folks, fashion included, is that we have this, again, this idea of asking for help. It can be pretty foreign to a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. I think to anybody. But today there's far more organizations, support organizations. Yeah. For instance, I sit on the board of 210, which is a footwear charity. But through their program and its Wi-Fi, Women in the Footwear Industry, there's mentoring programs. There's business help because I think of an example in, for instance, the footwear industry, two twins, they made their first million dollars making shoes and they were on Donnie Deutsch's Mega Millions and it was great. But unfortunately, they were the creatives, not the business people. And you really, they needed the business people around them in order to have longevity for their company and their brand. And it takes money and it takes investment. And it seems that there's a lot of companies or quite a few today that are buying up brand names only to either resurrect them or specifically place them in a certain segment or a channel in the industry. So in other words, identifying that you're skate and street, identifying that you're Oh, casual, you're dressy, you're mother of the bride. You know, there were really more pigeonholing and brands have looked to create lifestyle because they look at how people are living today. And so they're creating licensing. So you can have shoes, you can have hats, you can have clothing all under the same brand, which ultimately helps round out a brand and make it important, make it viable for the masses. So here's a question I have for you then, and and keeping that in mind. So you mentioned this idea that, and it's a true idea, that we are in an era that in order to be successful, we have to get used to this idea of building a brand and telling a story because a story is what's going to draw in consumers and investors given the fact that fashion is a crowded industry. It's one of the most coveted industries on the entire planet. Maybe I'm just biased, but I think that's true. So how do you then, from your perspective, take your company and tell a story without compromising your vision and going to mass market because you want to sell obviously because one one thing that manic metallic has as our ethos is that fashion's an art discipline and a societal force for change so notice that we started with art because we believe in that artistic perspective but i'm also savvy enough to know that fashion is a business so i know that you have to be able to sell to folks but you want to create or you want to keep the creative impulse behind it so how do you balance that storytelling then just for people listening and also no. Yeah, I think you need to identify who your customer is. Who do you want to service? Why do you want to service them? And that will determine your trajectory. So in the beginning, if you are, we'll use the term designer price points, then go then understand the lifestyle of that consumer that will spend a thousand dollars on a garment. Understand where they're finances are coming from, understand what they do and where they go, where they dine, where they socialize, so that you can better provide a product 
and then tell the story that either helps their life or enhances their life or, you know, because people spend money for various reasons. We used to have this saying, it's like an orchid for the soul. So when you're down or whatever, women shop to make themselves feel better. Right. Men tend to shop out of necessity, although that is changing. And women tend to be more fickle. But you really just need to get to know or to pinpoint who you want your consumer to be. And that could be a few buckets. You have the aspirational customer who perhaps can't afford. So you create your price points from an entry level to your top end. And you need to also look at what else is out there so that you have a a true reason that you're differentiating yourself from others. In other words, what makes you so special? And I think if you look at companies like Ralph Lauren and Tommy Hilfiger, Moschino, you can go all the way around that each one of these companies has identified a core consumer and built off of that. Absolutely. And I feel like all three of those that you mentioned are absolute masters at that. And if anyone's looking for someone to emulate in that regard, I would point them in that direction. And you know, it's funny because they're making a big deal about J. Crew and how many years they've been in business and blah, blah, blah. Well, they just spent a fortune on advertising over the last week or so. And I look and it's boring because I don't think whoever is behind that is really looking at who their customer is today or where they want to take the company. Yes, retro is important. I mean, personally, you know, which is why now we're talking about shoulder pads coming back. Well, if you've ever watched a 1940s, 1930s movie, the clothing, the styling was just exquisite. Now, does it fit a casual lifestyle? Perhaps not. But there are things and stylings and fittings from that period of time that people can use. There's going to come a time where people are going to go back to an office just from a business standpoint of creating culture and moving businesses forward because nothing works at a faster pace than when all the people are together. The conversations that go on in the hallway, it's key. You can't get this from Zooming or being at home. You need to be face-to-face with people, which for me, why the trade show industry was so important because it really allowed both the consumer, the retailer, the designer to be in one place at one time and have conversations and learn from each other and grow their businesses. And so in the last three years, we really haven't had that. Everything went to online and necessity. So if you're home, you need sweatsuits, you need this, you need that, you need slippers. Well, okay, that was a moment. And then all of these companies that weren't foresighted enough to realize, well, okay, when this pandemic ends, will people still be needing the same quantity and the same styling? Probably not. Doesn't mean there's not a market for it. It's just reduced. So what is the next new thing? And I think that's, you know, we talk about putting technology into our clothing, about wearing a jacket that you can plug your cell phone into that would charge it. So things like that are what is coming forward now out of the way in which we all live our life. Right. 
And there's definitely something to be said for meeting up in person. You're talking about going back into the office. Now, I will say on the one hand, I'm a person that prefers to work remotely. I like to have that flexibility. But I do understand that even with me, I like to be in person talking to someone because another way to look at it is that I just got tired of staring at screens over like a year, a year and a half or so. I mean, you can meet people and you can get to know them, but in order to really, really build a relationship and fashion is a relationships industry, you've got to have that in-person connection. Absolutely. How else are you going to grow and learn and hear new buzz things that are happening? It's not going to happen. No. No. And, you know, other people will argue with me and say, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Okay, that's fine. We'll see where their businesses are in like five years from now. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Like I said, I work remotely for the most part, but even I know that I've got to go out to events and When Fashion Week was all virtual, when we were just at home staring at shows online, instead of getting to go in person to cover the shows, I was dying inside. I was like, I can't network. How am I getting to know people? How is Manic Metallic growing? How it just didn't work. We got to look at photos of garments and we got to see some pretty cool videos. I think that the advancing of fashion film was something nice to come out of that time period. But yeah, I'm really happy to just going in person to Fashion Week again. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to meet other people, find out what they're doing, make yourself known. It's how you build your brand by being out there and being next to the industry. I mean, today, there's so much, I want to talk about restrictions being, I don't know if it's word restrictions, but new ways of doing things, you know, the ESG conversation. It's just a lot to absorb, more so today than ever before. And that is because there's so many channels now for the consumer to put their input and to see product and to be wowed. And that's why you need journalists. You need to utilize advertising, word of mouth, direct mail. You need to take it all in and utilize all of this. Perhaps creating events locally, small events, in-store pop-ups. I call it a trunk show where perhaps you can show your collection directly to the consumer in some of these stores and thus creating an event for the retailer to bring their customer, to wow their customer, offering them something they don't get every day. And that's always going to be true. People want what they don't already have, and they also want newness. It's like you show a collection and it comes in all these colors and they'd always buy black. Well, okay, that's great. At some point, you need to wow the consumer. So you have to have a percentage of your open to buy for novelty, for new, because you don't know what the next new thing is. As a retailer, you don't want to get caught in the switches when companies, big companies like Nike or Adidas or whomever decide they're going to close up their distribution and you're out. You're out. Your livelihood, your income has just been reduced to no fault of your own. So It's a very delicate balance that retailers and brands play with one another. 
and you just need to be savvy. It just depends on which end of the business you're in. Right. So we've talked a lot about trade shows and the advantage that trade shows, fashion shows, going in person to these things brings to a person. Now, I do have a question in comparing trade shows and fashion shows to each other. If you, let's say we're looking at both of those and you're wanting to go out and scout designers and footwear brands and basically look for new talent, the next big thing. So in your view, what is the advantage of going to a trade show over a fashion show or vice versa? How would you compare those two? Two different things. Two completely different things. A fashion show is, I would say 90% of the things coming down a runway will never be produced. They're really just for aesthetic purposes, for photography, so many things. And it's extremely expensive. And I don't know that that really, you, you have no, you can't touch the product because having a luxurious product or a durable product, you can't tell that from a runway. So it really is it's setting trends. As far as trade shows are concerned, it's highly important for you to get out there, not only to meet the others within your industry, but this is where the retailers end up shooting themselves in the foot because they really need to attend a trade event because the nugget that you'll walk away with, whether it's learning about a new product that can help your bottom line, new people, the networking is just that's not going to happen anyplace else. And there are trade shows for every single industry and association. So depending upon who you want to meet and what you want to learn, there's an event out there where you can really see a whole industry. So if you're looking for the next new technology, for instance, that can help your business, well, you probably want to go to a technology show and seek out your particular business. So for instance, in the fashion business, photography is important because people want to send photographs of their product to right. retailers. Well, you're not going to just take that with your iPhone. You know, you really need to set up a more professional system. Everything from as crazy as the mirrors that you could see yourself in the clothing without trying it on. It just depends. Taking orders. There's all of these computer companies because data is key. Time is important. And you'll learn all of this from being at a trade event. You're not going to learn this from, there's just not enough hours in the day to read up on everything you need to. Or do you have that kind of vast financial, I'll call it a pocketbook, to continue to hire people that are knowledgeable. I go back to what I said earlier, surround yourself with the smartest people you can find because they will make you look better. You will learn a lot and it will help your business. Absolutely. Now, from a journalism perspective in looking at trade shows versus fashion shows, you're right. They are two different things. They have different purposes. But when I, if I'm going to compare the two from my perspective, when I go to fashion shows, I'm going in, I'm sitting down, I'm taking a few notes, I'll get a couple of videos, maybe I get to chat with the designer, maybe not, because they're going to be really busy. From a designer's perspective, I mean, you're going to pay four or 500000 I think it is, something like that. I'm probably off at least a little bit for a show at New York Fashion Week, but it is really expensive. But from a journalism perspective, 
I'm there for 15 minutes. You know, maybe I go to a showroom on an alternate day sometime afterward to take a look at the collection. But I felt like, because I covered Magic Coterie for the first time in New York in February, I felt like I made so many more lasting connections at trade shows with retailers, with designers, and just getting to see what kind of trends there are out there across all different brands, like footwear, for example, and evening wear and outerwear. I feel like I got more of a feel for that rather than a fashion show, which I love going to, and I hope that I continue to, but it's over in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's a completely different reason. In other words, companies that can do fashion shows, you know, you're either a very large company or you know who your targeted audience is. So for instance, if you're in the bridal business, it's very important for them to show their collections to the press. It just depends where you are in your business because today you can invite people for cocktails to a showroom or to create an event for the designer to meet directly with people and have conversations. Because if you're early on in your career, it's all about as many people that you can touch and have them create a buzz about you and what you're doing and growing. And it's still a business. You still want to sell your product. It's like going to an art gallery. The, the paintings are there to be sold. So it's the same thing. And I think all too often right now, we've not done a really good job of educating the next generation into what goes into understanding the value of a garment. And what do I mean by that? In other words, I come from the school where I have to touch and feel. I have to touch the fabric. I want more, I use the term natural fiber. Well, silk and wool are natural fibers, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful when mm -hmm. polyester came around, it's washable. Denim, but there's many different grades of denim. If we just look at that one classification of fabric. So there's so much to explain to someone who's going out there to purchase and how garments should fit. It's a dying art and the atelier. And this is why, and I've been saying it for years, and I'm so happy to see it happening, that some of these larger fashion houses like LVMH, et cetera, are buying up these craftsmen, these artisan factories in Italy, all over the world, where a lot of handwork goes into it. And that's what makes garments and fashion so fabulous and gets us all excited. But if we don't have those craftsmen, we're never going to, you're never going to experience the luxuriousness or, I don't know, even just as simple things from waterproofing something like, how do they do it? Tanning leathers, you know, doing it with vegetarian, you know, vegan as opposed to with all the chemicals. There's right. just so much going on. And that's why I think it's so fascinating. It's fast paced. And I can relate it to the movie business because there's so many different aspects of when you see a final product, be it a movie or a dress or a pair of shoes, what really went into it and how long it took to develop the product 
a lot of people don't understand. And time is money. So you, again, I go back to you really need to have a strategy. You need to know who the consumer is that you want to service. And sometimes less SKUs are better today since we have less retailers. People's attention span is quite short. And you really need to utilize every channel today to get your name and your product out there. Integrity is important. You need to put yourself in the shoes, like I say, when you, I'll give you an example. I bought a pair of pants for my husband from a famous designer who I know and in a techno fabric. And I liked it because I thought, well, this is great for traveling. So my husband puts the pants on and the first time he wears it, he goes, you know, the fabric is so slippery that my wallet in the back pocket's going to fall out. And it did almost fall out a couple of times that night. So the next day I sent an email off to the designer who I happen to know was a client of mine at one time. And I told him, I said, look, love the pants, blah, blah, blah. But maybe you should think about putting a zipper in the back. And he goes, brilliant. How did we miss this? I'm on it. So it takes a village to create good products. And here's a very, very famous big time company with just such a little nuance could help sell the product even better and more of it. You think something like that, though, making sure that a wallet doesn't slip out of pants, like that would be one of the first things that you yeah, think Yeah, but you know, you, now there are so many laws and restrictions on fabric being treated for flammability. So each gender, so making children's clothes is different than making teens and adults and men's because there's different needs. Men don't carry a purse per se, so they need to have more pockets to sew pens, business cards, you know, whatever into their clothes, which is why you tend to see a lot of pockets on men's clothing as opposed to women's clothing. It's just, you really need to think about, again, who you're servicing, why are they looking to wear your product? We haven't even discussed the body types. How do we, how do do you design size runs? usually went from, I don't know, size 2 to 14. Well, maybe they need to be expanded. That costs money. Every time you make a... Yeah. One, thing, one thing that I'll say, sorry to interrupt you, Leslie. One thing that I'll say is that looking at sizes, yeah, maybe we've got 2 to 14, but also not having standardized sizing, oh. I think, is a problem too, because a size two in H&M is not going to be the same size two as in Versace. And that's not going to be the same size two in Marc Jacobs. So you never know what size you're going to be wearing in any given brand. You know, and that's the age old argument in the business. And as we ramp up production, each factory, if you think about how much hand work goes into a lot of clothing. Everybody, if you know anything about sewing, everybody sews with a different tension. Some people sew tighter, some people sew looser. It's the same thing on sizing. So it's very difficult to get the industry standardized. I think there's more conversation now about that since people are ordering on the internet, because let's face it, it's expensive on both sides, meaning for the manufacturer to ship you a product, like two or three of a size, you know, a style. 
in various sizes for you to try on, which is why a retail establishment is important. To your point, I know that the industry is working hard, it always has been, to try to standardize, but each factory makes clothes differently. And that's a real issue. And I think it's why people tend to stay with certain brands who have tried to standardize their sizing, but it doesn't always work because they're all made in different factories. And unless the quality control people are there constantly to watch over this, you're going to have an issue every now and then where, you know, a run of stuff didn't get made to this proper specifications. So it's definitely a conundrum. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we could sit and talk all day about each of these points that you've brought up. I feel like we could just take that on a completely different direction. But I know that we usually try to keep the podcast to about an hour or so, maybe a little bit over just to respect your time and our listeners. So I've got a couple of more questions. So give us something right now that you said that right now you are doing consulting in the industry. Well, what's something that you're working on right now inside of the realm of fashion? Something that is exciting you and that can be within your consulting work or it could be something else. Interesting. I guess I'm playing with that conversation for myself. I really do see a need for more specialty stores right now. And why do I say that? Because specialty stores have always been the ones to carry new designers, create the buzz in the industry. And I think there's something lacking there where today we need to perhaps see what we can do to encourage more people to open retail stores and be smart about it. Need to be business people, not just fashion people. And Not everything is Barnum and Bailey. So all of the major malls today are trying to be lifestyle and it's sensory overload. It's just how much do you need? How much can you expend? There's just so many different segments of the population. So I am interested, of course, in luxury. And I'm also interested in right now. What's the best way to create a new brand and help people facilitate that? So a friend of mine started a school. There's more and more programs that I'm involved with to help cultivate talent and find positions for them in, within the right company. And I think being an advocate for people to open up their minds and look at things a little differently. Because retailers and brands companies have tend to look at the world in a very narrow fashion. And I think today you have to be, you have a broader perspective. Someone once said at some point enough, we all have enough for the duration, which means a lot of clothes, a lot of shoes. And that's why I think quality and craftsmanship and artistry has to come back. And so I'm a big proponent in helping really talented artisans at the moment. Okay. Now in terms of craftsmanship, that's something that I forgotten that I wanted to touch on that when we were talking about it earlier. I actually feel like if you take fashion from a global perspective, and we're not just looking at New York, London, Milan, and Paris, I 
actually feel like there is a lot of craftsmanship out there because one of the products that Manic Metallic created a couple of years ago was an ebook called Alternative Fashion Capitals. And what we did is we looked at 20 different fashion capitals around the world. And really, the more that you, whether or not you read our book is another thing, but the more that you look at these different cities around the world, and these, in some cases, villages, there is a lot of craftsmanship out there. There's a lot of creativity out there. It's just that we're not really zeroing in on it. And we're finally starting to do that, mm-hmm. thankfully. But I think that in zeroing in on just these four places, being at the top of the fashion pyramid, a lot of this talent and craftsmanship tended to fly under the radar until very recently. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, that's why I said to you, I was very happy to see that some of these larger fashion houses are kind of taking a financial stake in yep. in history. I mean, you know, in Venice, you have the Fortuny company. I mean, like they could just go in each part of the world. They're known for something. And I say it's a dying art. Well, it doesn't have to be because I think we just need to start doing a really good job of educating the consumer about how a garment's supposed to fit. And understanding the value of why something costs what it does. Because a properly made garment, for instance, let's just say a skirt that is lined in silk or, you know, lining a garment helps it hang better on the body. How do you finish it? You know, it's all of these things that, and I don't want to use a dying art, it should be an art that we are respectful of. Because there's so many different components that go into making hats, shoes, gloves. I mean, anything that we wear that could be considered fashion. I mean, we haven't even touched on jewelry, accessories. There's just so much out there that could be reinvented. If people look at what sold well before or was a trend, how could you innovate that to the lifestyle of today? When I talked about clothing of the 30s and 40s or the 20s, they were a lot of A-line, for instance, draped type of garments. Well, that certainly would be comfortable and that would work for today. So there's a lot of young, smart talent out there. How do we show them how it was made and have them think about perhaps how they could make it today? Functional, wearable, desirable, all of those things. Because... I go back to something I said earlier, you know, fashion is really an orchid for the soul. It makes you feel good. I really like that saying. <laughs> so let's look at a piece of advice that you'd have for anyone. I feel like this entire podcast has been one big advice episode, honestly. But if you have anything else that you would recommend for folks wanting to be involved in the fashion industry to join and be a designer or a retailer, a buyer, etc. what would you tell them? I think the world we live in today, you really have to have a talent and a desire. And you can't fool yourself because if you're fooling yourself, everyone knows themselves best. And yes, you know, everyone who's a creative person always doubts themselves as well. We always second guess ourselves. But let's take the people that have really a truly a talent, whether it's an ear for music, design, 
construction, data. In other words, everyone is good at something. And you hone in on that and stay with it. You'll be successful. And at the end of the day, everyone wants to make a living. Everyone wants to be known, or I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people do it for their ego. And that's good, but you also got to put your ego in your pocket when you're in a business to make money. So I advise everyone, you have to have a cast iron stomach. You have to be able to take rejection and you have to be able to think out of the box and think on your feet. So one today needs to wear a lot of hats. And I keep saying, if you don't have the full knowledge of, for instance, technology or data, then work with someone, find someone who is that you can learn from, because it's not going to be easy. There's no such thing as an overnight success in anything. It takes years. And I always equate it to being a good basketball or sports player. They didn't get there overnight. It took years of practice. Hits, fumbles, falls, all of those things go into making a really good and successful person, athlete, or company. So that would be my advice. Stay true to your passion. Make sure that you surround yourself with good people. Don't be a know-it-all because no one knows everything. And you have to be able to, as I said, to take the rejection because there's a lot of it. Yeah. And one thing that I would add to all of this really good advice that you just gave is that I feel like a seed within all of those is patience. Mm-hmm. The seed within all of those is patience because if you're learning to take rejection, then that means that it's going to take a while for you to succeed. If you're going to look at the talent that you have and stick with that, then that's going to take patience and then you'll become successful. So all of these, oh yeah, and you're doing it like most people, you're in the business for ego purposes. Well, you still have to be patient in order for what you're doing to succeed. I feel like a lot of people, whether in fashion or outside of fashion, have trouble waiting for those dreams to materialize. Yeah, because we're conspicuous consumption society. We want it now. We want it fast. We want it yesterday. I would say people need to make it their mission to meet at least two new people a week or something like that in order to grow. That's a great idea. And make it a mission to talk to people in the industry that you are passionate about to continue to grow and network, because I think that is the key to success. All right. This has been a really good hour. Good. Thank you. This has been nice for me too. Terrific. So, and I feel like our listeners are getting a lot that they're going to be able to use. I think that we've had a lot of really good guests, but I feel like our particular conversation has been especially meaty for folks. So yeah, thanks for being on. And one last question that I ask of every single guest that we have. Okay. Could you give us three places in the city where you're based in? You're in LA right now, right? Correct. Could you give us three places in LA, like boutiques or concept stores, places like that, where if someone came to, in your case, Los Angeles, to shop, where should we go? 
Well, okay, so I did write something down, kind of crazy. So one is called Stacy Todd, and she doesn't have a website. Soto, <clears throat> which is more fast fashion, but really cool stuff, pieces here and there. And then, you know, of course, what's going on in Melrose Place and that whole genre off of Melrose right now here in Los Angeles is pretty cool. So could you spell that out for us? So Soto, S-O-T-O, right? Just for people listening. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and Stacy Todd, S-T-A-C-E-Y-T-O-D-D, and she's in Studio City. Okay. And so you mentioned everything that's going on in Morrow's place. Like what's, I've actually never been to Los Angeles. So could you tell us what's going oh, on? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, LA is a spread out city is the best way to explain it. And there's different enclaves like, for instance, in Venice, you have Abbott Kinney, and then you have Main Street. So you have these little pockets of where retail is happening. So Melrose Place is really a bit more upscale, a bit more now, a bit more brands that have a worldwide exposure. And it's mixed with art, it's mixed with jewelry, and it's growing. It's just it's a lovely little environment to really go in there and see some brands that you probably wouldn't see elsewhere. But again, I come back to where I said to you, we need more retailers. We need more great places to go in and find wonderful clothing. I mean, in the South Bay, there's a store called Amory's, which is fabulous. You have Elise Walker and Pacific Palisades. So you have stores all over, and it just depends what you're looking for. It's more specialized. Right. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times that we need more retailers and the types of retailer that you think that we should have. Now, would you ever consider opening a store? I say it all the time, but I just don't want to be married to it. If you think about Barney's and the hole that it left to the consumer who shopped Barney's and was a dedicated Barney shopper, I ask you, where's that shopper going today? They're not going to Neiman's. They're not going to Saks. Maybe you know, don't. I think Zara has picked up a lot, but people still want quality. We want, you know, so I know personally, the majority of the shopping that I've done over the years has been in Europe. And I'm looking forward to going back to doing some more. <laughs> right. You going anytime soon? Yeah, hopefully in the next uh, month or so. Right. I miss Europe. I went last year for my honeymoon. My husband and I were there for the entire month of June. And we went to different cities in central and northern Italy. And then we went to France. So it's always a good time shopping over that way. Yeah. I mean, especially for someone like me, who's you know spent a lot of time over there working. So I kind of know the little nooks and crannies. You know, and I miss that. We don't have that necessarily in the United States. New York used to, and hopefully it will come back. But right now, I really don't see it happening. I see certain cities, perhaps, maybe Nashville, Atlanta. I think you see more of that down there because the women and the men in that part of the world have always dressed. So. Right. I think it just depends. I think that's what makes fashion so fascinating is because it's different all over. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I have been happy to see 
in recent times in the United States is that I know that we don't have the fashion culture that Europe does. And I think we honestly never will because of a few particular cultural indicators. I just don't think it'll ever happen. But we will have people, specific people, specific groups that are well-dressed and that do appreciate fashion. And it is nice to see New York's iron grip on fashion loosening a bit and seeing new stores in places like Nashville and maybe Miami, Mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Right. Right. So yeah, thanks for being on the podcast, Leslie. Do you have anything that you would like for any of our listeners to maybe go and check out or visit? Or is there a way to connect with you outside of the podcast? Sure. You have my email address, so you can certainly, I think, use that. But I'm thrilled to have been here today and wish you a lot of success and hope to do it again in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. We talked about so many different topics. We've got to have you back on at some point. I think that would be really, really nice. Happy to. And again, thank you, Liberty, for having me. And I wish you all the best and everyone out there. Thanks for listening. If you got value out of today's episode, it'd mean a lot to me if you'd rate, review, and subscribe to the Manic Metallic Podcast. Be sure to tell all of your fashion-inclined friends and co-workers about the podcast as well. This would really help us to spread our message about fashion being an art, discipline, and force for societal change. And don't forget to stay in touch with us by subscribing to the Manic Metallic Newsletter and following us on Instagram. Feel free to reach out to us through either of those means. I'd love to hear from you. I'll link these all in the show notes. You're the best. See you next episode.